The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning. The following episode includes discussion of magical leaves, prophecies, miracles, big temples, bigger disappointments, black magic, fresh lime soda, and snake astronauts. Sensitive listeners, you've been warned. It's the middle of August. I've been in India for two minutes and everything is falling apart. I want the complaint number for the universe. I want a manager on the line because this is not what my astrologer, Dr. Kumar, told me would happen. So you are in the right track. Something very profound is going to happen to you now. I mean, Dr. Kumar did predict I'd be going to India for this show. There are lots of things for you to accomplish, including foreign travels. So go to India because that is where all the gyan and wisdom is. (laughs) And he also said this. You cannot fail. Let's put it as that. Back in April, I experienced a miracle of astrology. I'd walked into a random astrologer's office in Queens, and during my session, the astrologer, Dr. Kumar, had told me something horrible would happen. And he was right. Exactly one month later, my father passed away, and it changed the trajectory of both this show and my life. And for many people, that would be enough to make them believe in astrology. But it wasn't for me. Astrology had told me what would happen, but I still had no idea what to do about it. But there was one place that I really thought could have the answers. These little shops hidden across India that practice naughty astrology. The idea is your fortune was written on scrolls centuries ago, and if you can find your scroll, it'll reveal everything. Your past, your future, who's the person you're supposed to be? Anyway, the moment I decide to book the trip to see one of these shops, I call my aunt Suman and ask her to be my fixer. 
When I was in high school, Suman or Sumanaka and my uncle Jayant let me live and intern with them in Bombay for a summer. They were running this hot new advertising company called Heartbeat, which had just made huge waves with this racy condom campaign. Karma Sutra Premium Condoms. Of course, I sat in on the decidedly less racy creative meetings, which I loved pitching ideas and jingles for things like washing machines and ceiling fans. That summer gave high school me a huge boost of confidence. It had this direct impact on my co-founding a magazine a few years later. But also, hanging with Sumanaka was just fun. She inspired silliness. Like, sometimes she'll just decide it's more enjoyable to have a conversation like you're singing opera to one another. Today's shopping list for me, coffee, jam, a bag of tea, something sweet and spaghetti. This will be a boring spree. So I'm eager to hang out with her again. Except somewhere between Bombay's baggage claim and customs, I get this call. Right now, I'm shivering away. So I'm so I, I'm really so sorry that you're you're ill. It was really frustrating because I'd arranged everything. Sumanaka is waiting for the doctor to call back, and it's very likely she has dengue fever. Well, I've been using my mosquito repellent like it's cologne, and so it's... (laughs) I'm playing it cool on the phone, but this is me secretly terrified. Not so much about the diseases, though dengue and COVID are definitely not great, but more how I'm going to manage these interviews. If they speak English, I'm fine going alone, huh? Oh, he only speaks Hindi. This is a problem because meri Hindi bohot karab, aka my Hindi is shit. So I panic. And then I have an idea. What if her son plays translator for me? And and I realize this is a ridiculous question, but uh, for the Nadi guy, is there any way I could take Arjun with me? Arjun who's a few years younger than me, was always a golden child. He was handsome, sensitive, artistic, and musical. But I lost track of him in our 20s when he moved to Dubai and started a career there. And then there was this period where he fully disappeared. This dark spot, which our family doesn't really talk about. You'll have to ask him. Yeah. You just call him. Yeah. That'll be nice. The rain pummels the city as I take a cab in, but I'm happy to see the monsoon. It's both wet and sunny outside, and everything smells green and earthy as the rain continues to fall. In the lobby, the hotel doors are open, and if you look just right, between the swaying palms and the mist, you can spot the Arabian Sea. I'm fiddling with my recording equipment when I spot Arjun walking in. I can't tell you how happy I am to see him. We're both grayer, both dads now. After a quick embrace, I tell him about the chaos that's welcomed me. How he saved me, because... I feel like that's my entire trip, is like everything's falling apart slowly. You know, the charm of India Uh is that even if everything's breaking down, everything's fine. 
<laughs> you know, everyone has a very nice, relaxed kind of attitude. Like, this happens. Yeah. You, got, you can't take life so seriously. There's a phrase in India, chalta hai, which loosely translates to, don't worry, things happen. You hear it a lot because India is unbridled. No matter how much you try to will it, it runs on its own schedule. And that's wonderfully easy to embrace when you're on vacation or not responsible for what happens. But it's a little more difficult when you're on an impossible quest to determine what you should and shouldn't believe for the rest of your life, and you've given yourself two weeks to do that. But that's why people come to India, right? To go on some sort of spiritual retreat and find themselves? God, I'm such a cliche. The only thing I can hope for now is that Dr. Kumar is going to be right twice. You cannot fail. Let's put it as that. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, I'm Mangesh Hatikadur. Welcome to Skyline Drive. Chapter 1 Straight from Shiva's Mouth This is Bombay. As a kid, Bombay is where I used to start and end every trip to India. Midnight arrivals and 2 a.m. feasts with relatives who've been waiting years to see us. The world was bigger then, harder to wrap your arms around, and flights to India took 22 hours, with multiple layovers and refueling stops. New York, then Paris, then Cairo, then Delhi, and only then Bombay. And it was expensive. We'd save up until we could go back, and every trip was an event. This is the library It's under my aunt's apartment in Chambur, and it's where I used to borrow old comics and mad magazines. This is the Gymkhana, where I learned to play snooker. This is Xavier's, where my dad studied, and then didn't in his more delinquent years. This is the disco where I learned to dance, and Khyber, where my parents went on their first date. Bombay has always felt like my city. In New York, people correct me when I say Bombay, but Indians never do. Still, I toggle between the names depending on my mood. Driving through the city, it feels like an old friend whose path is veered from your own. Like, you don't quite see eye to eye anymore, but you're also not around each other for long enough to make a thing of it. The thing is, I still feel my dad here like a fog that descended on the city ages ago and refused to burn off. But I kind of just got into this relationship, so I don't know how to 
navigate. And she's like all cool and chill. Arjun and I are standing on a street corner in the Santa Cruz neighborhood of Bombay. And we're waiting to step into the naughty shop that my aunt Suman somehow located for us. From the outside, the place looks tiny and nondescript. Something you'd overlook if you weren't hunting for it. How would you describe it since you're not from here? There's a fleet of rickshaws going by us, right? And, uh, and the rain has stopped now, but there were tons of puddles and... Lots of cow shit, but the cows seem to have moved on. Even in central Bombay, <laughs> cows own the road. And we're going to walk into this place to see the Nadi. Do you know anything about Nadi? This will be my first experience too, but there's a lot of fortune telling that happens in India. And some of it can be pretty authentic, though the charlatans are much more in number. Yeah. So I'm hoping this is a great experience. The funny thing about these Nadi shops is that as soon as people tell you to go to one, they'll also tell you how many fake ones there are. But this place is well regarded, so I'm hopeful. We walk through the doorway, leave our shoes in a dusty two foot by two foot vestibule, and then enter reception barefoot. I don't know what I was expecting, like maybe a wall full of scrolls or maybe big brass sculptures of little known deities and saints, or maybe just some wall art. Instead, we're standing in a tiny, poorly lit box a couple of benches pressed up against the walls and a desk facing the door. We give our name to the man puttering at the desk and then we just wait. Five, ten minutes, may I complete prayer? Of course, of course. The Nadi reader, Mukeshji, peeks out from behind a wall to tell us he's doing his morning prayers. He asks us if we'd like water or tea while we wait. How incredible would it be if the first astrologer I met in India located an instruction manual for the rest of my life. What if the leaves hiding in his archive actually contain my life's purpose? I am genuinely giddy. The prayers take longer than 10 minutes, but sab chalta hai. It all works. We get ushered into an even tinier room, though this one actually has personality. It's bright lime green with a couple of temple calendars on the wall. And then Mukesh walks in with an armful of wooden bundles. So these are a whole bunch of scrolls, right? Actually, Mukesh places the scrolls on his desk and lets us inspect them. Oh, wow, it's engraved. It's beautiful. I've been calling them scrolls, but that feels like the wrong word. Have you ever seen those Pantone booklets with pages that fan out? These are almost like an ancient version of that, but longer, made of very thin sheets. Each scroll is maybe three to four inches wide and about a foot and a half long. And they're stacked and bound with maybe 30 or 40 per booklet. As we marvel at the tiny lines of text etched across them, Mukesh explains the origins. And what do, these, are, these are palm leaves. Palm just, leaves. Uh, the leaves, he tells us, were etched in the 18th century when a family made copies of the original millennia-old predictions. The engravings were laborious, and the script is tiny, but these scrolls have lasted because the caretakers meticulously rub them with oil once a year to preserve them. Here's Arjun translating. This is coming from Tamil Nadu, and Tamil is the oldest language in the world. Hmm. And it's coming from the Siddha tradition. The Siddhas are some of the oldest keepers of knowledge, according to India. India yeah. Mukesh also tells us that these Nadi Shastras, or sacred prophecies, have a mythological provenance. Lord Shiva, 
in his infinite wisdom, shared this knowledge with the goddess Parvati, his wife, and then she passed it on to Lord Brahma, who passed the knowledge from the gods to the sages and then finally to the priests. And to me, it sounds like a game of celestial telephone. But Mukeshji tells us these scrolls are actually less prone to human error than traditional astrology because the words inscribed here come straight from God. So he is only the reader, but the information is directly available and cannot be soiled by human touch as such. Mukesh tells us he's been doing this for 29 years. He shows us photos on his phone of him with clients, people he asks us not to share, but they include some of India's biggest politicians and most famous scientists. He stresses that he's a humble man. He is just a reader, providing answers for people in need. And I believe him. Then he gently reaches for my thumb, rolls it across a pad of ink, and he presses it onto a sheet of paper. said the rishis, he gave us a methodology directly relating to the thumbprint for which there are 108 divisions. Basically, the whirls on my finger will give the librarians a clue as to where my leaf might be. There are thousands and thousands of these bundles of scrolls in the back, and they're all carefully organized. Sometimes he says the process can take 15 minutes. Sometimes it takes months. He also comments on my aunt's absence. He says part of the reason she fell ill was that she wasn't meant to be here today. You can only show up in this room if it's your destiny. Sometimes people have car accidents trying to get here. Others apparently get dengue. But since I've made it into this room, he tells me this is fate. Life is also such that at the end of the day, this is Earth. Yeah. There will be problems. He said that you must remain like in your mind, in your heart, quiet. Yeah. Because problems will come. Problems will go. Yeah. So try and stay calm. But it is destiny. I stare at the ink on my thumb, remembering this weird fact from my days at Mental Floss, that koalas have fingerprints that can be mistaken for humans. And I laugh to myself wondering if my scroll could be mistaken for a koala's. If Mukeshji walks back in and tells me that I'll enjoy napping in trees for 18 hours a day, or if in my older age I'll really love feasting on eucalyptus, then I'll know exactly what went wrong. It's the type of dumb joke that I'd share with Sumanaka, but it's too dumb to make in this room. Over the next three weeks that I'm in India, Mukesh will look and he'll keep touching base. But he won't find my scroll. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast is 
NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 2. The Thing That Matters. Language is curious in how it informs and reflects ideals. The way my family talks is gentle. The dialect we speak is sing-songy. My old roommate, Lasako, used to tell me it was like butter when she heard me talking to my mom on the phone. But if it's sweet and overly polite, it's also not direct. My dad didn't often talk about the sad things or the hard things. Often he'd skip over the specifics and allude to difficulties in terms that were vague but capacious. So, if he were to discuss my cousin Arjun, he might say, It was so hard what he went through. It's really good he's back now. Which is insufficient. My cousin Arjun is back now, and of course I'd heard the whispers. But he told me his story. I'm also going to try and catch you up in a nutshell. It involves him building townships in the Ivory Coast. And you're ever in Ivory Coast. Never see Ivory Coast. I'm quite dead. Yeah. And then coming back to Dubai to help sort a multi-million dollar deal. I actually shifted to the Middle East. Everyone was like, what's wrong with you? It involves a reneged transaction and him taking the fall for someone else's carelessness. 
They called up and I said, can I come back now that I've sent your money mm. to clear everything? They said, ah, oh, come on back. There's no problem. You send the money, you've cleared everything. I came back and I got arrested. It's him being thrown in some of the region's worst and most violent prisons. I've been thrown multiple jails. Yeah. Tossed around. And pretending to be a Buddhist so he wouldn't be killed for being a Hindu. Many of them were petty criminals, but a lot of them were knife murderers. It is a story of trauma. I kind of collapsed mentally, spiritually, psychologically. And finding a guru who nurtured his resiliency. So the guru actually can identify within you whether you're ready or you're still holding back. And it's the story of a miracle. When I came out, I had had malaria for 50 days. Wow. Without medication. There was no practical reason in the world I should have been alive. And another. My sentence disappeared. They had to let me go because they didn't know what they were doing with a person that didn't have any record of any jail sentence. Some of our chats I taped, some of them I didn't, but I know he could have died in prison from beatings or malaria or anything. He could have been there forever, except somehow a mystic told him his court records would disappear. And they did. And the mystic assured him the jails would release him on house arrest. And they did. And then the guru told him to go. So he hid and he waited and he waited until, in darkness, he was stuffed into the bed of a truck, crammed in with other terrified bodies and trafficked across borders until he found his way home. And now it is him being here in India with me. And still I come out alive once again, you know, cheating death. Too many times I've done that. It's a way to tell a story without telling a story. It is vague and capacious and insufficient. But he is back now. How are you? I'm brilliant. And it's the thing that matters. Chapter 3. Believe me. Despite Mukesh's reputation, I had struck out in Bombay, but luckily I'd come with a backup plan, to make a pilgrimage to Chennai. The truth is, I don't know anything about Chennai. I've never been, and mostly, people in my family have warned me there's no reason to go. Not because of anything cultural or political, it just comes down to the weather. Everyone complains about the intense heat and humidity. But Chennai which is located in the South Indian state of Tamil Nadu, is special in terms of Nadi. According to the story, when the rishis or holy men received the wisdom of the gods, they transcribed it onto leaves. And those leaves were protected by generations of South Indian kings. And at some point, these manuscripts ended up in a library in Tanjore, also in Tamil Nadu. And while some of the copies were loaned out to other cities like Delhi or Mumbai, the majority of the authentic Nadi centers stayed local within driving distance of Chennai. My friend and story editor Mark has agreed to come with me, which is a really nice security blanket. And I also invite Arjun. Should I get you a ticket to come meet us there? I would love that, yeah. Perfect. 
Is Mark coming now? For a minute, we thought Mark wasn't going to make it to India. His visa got backlogged. There was a moment where I wanted to tell him not to worry. But even I lost faith by this point. Then, thanks to God or the Indian embassy or possibly Dr. Kumar, it was approved right before he was set to leave. It'll be fun, I think. I think the three of us hanging out will be fun. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be so cool. Okay, great. When we land, we're welcomed by our driver, Satish, and an entire town plastered in Chess Olympiad posters, featuring a cartoon horse and a dhoti, because apparently Chennai is India's chess capital. Besides the posters, which are honestly everywhere, I'm a little surprised by how little of the language I can follow. I don't speak a lick of Tamil, the local language here, and neither does Arjun. And the six or seven languages we can cobble together between the two of us don't help us in the slightest. So it's funny how alien I feel in a country where I'm normally so at home. Speaking of aliens, I should probably tell you about the strangest person I'll meet on my entire journey. Between Mumbai and Chennai, I had stopped off in Bangalore, a town filled with relatives. On one of those days, my aunt Sheila, or Shiluaka, introduces me to a medicine man who supposedly channels the spirit of St. Augustia and shakes metal keys as he goes into a trance to identify what's wrong with your body. St. Augustia, aside from being the Siddha or enlightened soul who supposedly brought the nadi leaves to humans by taking dictation from the gods, is also a patron saint of healing. I try to go into this meeting with an open mind, but... The healer is a character, probably in his 60s, spry and cocky with a mischievous smile. If I was trying to cast a South Asian leprechaun for an Indian Lucky Charms commercial, he'd be on my shortlist. And even though his accent is unbelievably thick, like so thick that I'm working overtime to understand each and every word, I am captivated by his experience with black magic. What they do? See, some, uh, man, I mean, man, what is called the attractive power people know. Mm. They use attractive power. They have negative energy, they will send it. Mm. As he tells it, a neighbor put a voodoo-like curse on him. And he kept losing weight and balding and losing weight and balding. And no one could tell him what was wrong with him. Until when he was sickly thin and had been robbed of all his glorious plumage, he found a talisman buried in his backyard. It was wrapped in rags and hair and blood, all the telltale signs of black magic. And when he burned it and reversed the curse, his neighbors had some of the worst luck ever. They lost their money, their health, even their home. He grins wide when he tells me about this instant karma. I honestly don't know what to make of this guy. On one hand, my aunt told me that after years of not being able to conceive, it was this man who gave her the herbs and tinctures to finally carry a child. Her story is really powerful, and I've heard so many others that he's helped or cured, but he also tells me with absolute certainty that Tamil is the greatest language bar none, because it's the oldest, which is true, and the most powerful, which I don't quite understand, but okay. 
and the most sophisticated, which I start to chuckle at because now there are a lot of descriptors being used and I'm sensing a real air of Tamil hubris here. But then he brings his argument all together by saying, and this is the strangest part, it only makes sense that Tamil is the language that aliens communicate with. What? But all speak Tamil. Their, their language is Tamil only, no? Hmm. It will come link a long time to take to find out. When I look at him quizzically, trying to understand how exactly we've moved from astrology to aliens, he just assures me he's right. Then he smiles at me like I'm an idiot, because obviously aliens speak Tamil. Chapter 4 Snake Astronauts It's 6 a.m. and it feels so much earlier. We drive off the hotel lot straight into traffic and I can only tell we're past the city limits when the cartoon horse posters disappear. Up until this point, it felt like every advertisement was about chess, but now the billboards are for toothpaste and soaps and clothes and wedding rings, and Arjun and I both notice how strange it is that everyone in the ads is incredibly light-skinned. And what a mindfuck that must be. But then I stop paying close attention. The drive starts to feel like every drive I've taken between cities in India. Stretches of rickety shops. Stretches of vibrant villages with kids playing outside. Long, dusty in-betweens dotted with fields and factories, banks and petrol stations. There are these trees that line the roads with red and white trunks painted that way to prevent termites and also to show poachers that the forestry service is keeping watch. Mark and I are both feeling the jet lag, but Arjun's two coffees have definitely kicked in. He peppers us with questions about life in the States, about recent Supreme Court cases. He talks about India and all the miracles he's witnessed that have made him a true believer. And then he says this. If you study Hindi, Hindu or Vedic uh, texts, you'll understand that there's a lot of interaction between snake culture and human culture. And um, there's a lot of snake worship that happens in India. Okay, so I'm going to pause right here to say I don't know what's going on with all the snake talk, but they keep coming up again and again, and it feels like it should mean something. The way George in our last episode saw a snake as a sign that he could be good to himself, that he could shed his trauma and transform. The way my mom experienced snakes as a curse, something she had to transcend with mysterious prayers. And now, Arjun is talking about how he read early Hindu texts about snakes as these superior beings, carriers of a greater wisdom, and he starts talking about one account he read, 
from a mystic who claims to have seen these astral snakes. He said that his guru got him to meet one of the incoming astronauts, space snake astronauts. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I said it's, it's, uh, it feels unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's, uh, but just the idea of a snake astronaut. Snake astronaut? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like a traveler, essentially. A traveler. Right. He doesn't wear a, he didn't have to wear a spacesuit. Uh-huh. And when you read the book, he says it's, it's not possible for me to explain what exactly I saw, but the snakes are very different than what you all imagine in your head. And all I can describe to you is it was blue and glowing. In my cursory understanding of Hindu and Buddhist cosmology, these serpent-like beings rule over three planes filled with multiple planets. And they're worshipped as the keepers of both incredible treasure and concealed wisdom. Treasure texts, as one book puts it. As we drive further away from Chennai, I feel like they're this harbinger of what we're about to learn. Uh, the snakes don't rule over hell. They rule over a different set of planets. And they're supposed to be very opulent creatures. Mm. Who, uh, is this in this book? Or is this a different book? Mark, who's been quiet this whole time, perks up at this talk of snake astronauts. He has so many questions about the origins and about how much Arjun could actually believe in this. But he mostly just smirks and saves his commentary for later. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's that's the problem that I have with the this. Hang up. <laughs> yeah. That's the issue that I have. Whether or not they were spacesuits. First of all, let me imagine that snakes <laughs> astronauts were spacesuits. Before long, we realize we're in Kanjipuram. The temple town is famous for its beautiful shrines and architecture, along with its saris, which are gorgeous bolts of rich silk embroidered with thread dipped in gold. I sit up to look at the surroundings, noticing these little altars side by side with banana stands. All of a sudden, Satish turns in and we pull up to one of the most gorgeous temples I have ever seen. It towers over the city, and I crane my neck to see where its crown touches the sky. I later learn it's called Ekambareshwar Temple. Records of its initial structure date back to 300 BCE, and it is stunning. Like a 60-meter-tall ziggurat. Except, instead of a giant, blocky pyramid, it has 11 stories of relief work, with intricately carved pillars and depictions of myths and avatars. If the greatest churches and cathedrals are meant to fill you with awe, to make you feel humbled in the presence of a greater beauty, then this temple does the trick. I can't wait to see the inside, to meet the temple leaf readers, but as soon as I try to hop out, Satish motions me to stay inside. He steps out and gestures and a man nearby, and the man just shakes his head. It's clear we're in the wrong place, so Satish jumps back in and... Then we drive. And drive. 15 minutes later, we're parked in this dusty lot in front of a cinder block wall that feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. 
if there wasn't this big yellow sign outside declaring that this was a house of astrology, I would have assumed it was a storage facility or maybe a clinic. Whatever it is, it's no 11-story carved temple. Chapter 5. The Waiting Game We swap mosquitoes and reapply repellent. We make idle conversation. We look at our phones and, like kids in a car, asking over and over, are we there yet? I walk from the patio into the little reception area to see if we can get started. Arjun goes in a few times too. After a few hours of waiting, they finally take my thumbprint. Mangish. 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 Did you meet me? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, born in America. My father's name is Mangish. All Indian names are not even, we are not foreigners, you are Indian. They put us in the queue and then we wait some more. Every 10 or 15 minutes, someone's name is called and one of the men, because it is weirdly almost all men here, a mix of middle aged business owners and Young people who look anxious to get married, they start disappearing inside. When it's finally our turn, we follow the receptionist to the second level. Despite the thatched roof, it's actually way more modern up here and welcoming. There are these sliding doors with little enclosures where people are doing one-on-ones, and Arjun, Mark, and I all squeeze into a room. When our man finally walks in, he's wearing vibhuti, these... Three stripes across his forehead, applied with sacred ash, often associated with priests. He also has a big pile of scrolls in his arm. Now, this is going to be hard to follow, but he asks if I speak Tamil. And then, in broken English, he tells us he needs to find my palm leaf first. He indicates how the scrolls are like a card catalog. Your thumbprint helps you find your scroll. Your scroll helps you find your full horoscope, which is also hidden somewhere in the stacks in the back. I am reading one by one palm leaf. Your Tamil impression is six or seven bundles. I am reading. Your name, father name, mother name, full reader, one or two leaf. First of palm leaf, the confirm. Our reader starts reading the Tamil off the scroll. He asks, your father's dead and your mother's living. I respond, yes. They're looking for an exact match, the perfect card in the card catalog, and each time the details of the scroll don't line up with my life, he slaps it to the back of the bundle and moves on to the next. You were married and living with your wife? Yes. Your mother had two marriages ever? No. Smack! The leaf goes into the back of the pile. Sometimes when he starts reading a leaf and sees it doesn't match, he doesn't even ask, he just moves it to the back. And the sorting keeps going. He asks if I'm 45, and I just laugh. I am enjoying all of this, feeling like there's real momentum. And I tell him, no, I'm 42. We keep going, and some of it gets confusing. Like, he asks if I have two sons. Two children, Eva? I have two children. Two male children? No, boy and a girl. I mean, I have a son and one kid who's non-binary. He slaps it to the back of the pile, but I'm a little dizzy trying to stay on top of his accent and trying to make sure I'm answering the questions correctly until he says this. No, father. Mother, only one sister, no brother. 
I have one sister, no brother. Sister unmarried. Yeah. Yes. Marriage is for engagement. Yes. Sir, man, I give you some sir. married, living with your boy. Yes. Aunt, man, I give you some sir. Man, I have no brother, only one sister. Yes. Sister, married, unmarried. You are married, living with your boy. Father death, mother living. You are in private job working. And bingo, that is it. He has found it. After 15 hours of being on planes, two weeks of hunting through stacks in Mumbai, another hour-long flight, a two-hour drive, and three hours of waiting on a humid patio that would give most steam rooms an inferiority complex. We see this man for 20 minutes, and he just finds it. Arjun thinks I'm blessed. Mark looks more skeptical. And the three of us, we file downstairs. So what happens now? Do we know? So I, the tough part is done, which is he had to be matched. We weren't able to get him matched in Bombay. They didn't, they couldn't find him. Yeah. And now you've got the real thing. So now the fun will be that you'll be broadcasting to America your future. <laughs> If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 6. Son of a Milkman. We wait outside a little more, and then we're called in and walk through this long hallway to a room in the back, which faces onto a courtyard. The complex is bigger than I'd realized, with places to do pujas and with rooms to rent. As we sit down, Mr. Kumar... The same man from reception double-checks that this is the right file. He goes through some details about my thumb, that I'm a Brahmin, that I was born on May 1st. And then he reads my file. You were born in good families. You were born in good families. I'm listening keenly, but nothing he says here is interesting. He says my mother may get ill, but medicines will help. He says my sister's engagement has already taken place, and in the near future, she will get married. Your sister's marriage will take place. Your sister will be enjoying her life with the husband. But here's the thing. While we're sitting in this room, I have one of those Kaiser Soze moments from The Usual Suspects. In the whole scroll section, I'd given away all my details. Is your mom's name Chitra? No, it's Lalita. Is your father living? No, he's passed. Is your sister married? Well, she's engaged. And as I realize this, everything from here on becomes tainted. Like the predictions are so mundane. You'll have a good life. You'll get sick. You'll have medicine and get better. Your children will have a good education. You'll make decent money. You'll have good relationships with others. I mean, it's just a mishmash of vague things that happen to everyone. And details I've already confirmed. In some ways... The most surprising thing he says is this line. You will be luxurious <laughs> I laugh because in some ways, this is both the most ridiculous thing and the most specific thing about me. Today, I have never had a new car or a luxurious one. Since high school, I've just driven a series of beaters. And man, I would love a car that starts when you want it to. Anyway, the rest of the reading is more of the same. Basically, he's upselling us here. What I got was the starter pack. We've already paid for that part, and we put down a healthy tip on top on his insistence. You don't take cards, right? Or you don't take uh, like Google Pay or anything like that. Oh, okay. Google Pay, okay. Okay, I'll figure that out then. Okay. And now, if I want to know more about any specific part of my life. The section of the leaf that deals with my career, or my health, or my kids, or one of like nine more things, we will need to pay more. I step outside to chat with Mark. Are you confused? The truth is, I was more than confused. I was feeling deflated. After that experience in Mumbai, we had spent so much time trying to figure out the perfect Nadi place to visit. I'd come all this way and dragged Mark and Arjun here because this is where I thought I had the best chance of finding my fortune. And then, 
nothing. It feels like kind of a bust. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't expect grand revelations every time. There's a line I didn't catch on tape, but it stuck with me. Mark says, you already got your miracle of astrology. You can't expect a second one. You can't expect it every time. When I go back in, the reader opens the chapter about my last life. He says, I had been born the son of a milkman in the milk business. You know, in a typical milk vendor family. He was born in Malabon. Now, it is called Uttar Pradesh state of India. He was born in milk vendor family. He tells me that I slept around, and I think he's saying that I gave my wife STDs. You gave problem to your wife. I also treated my parents horribly and didn't support them. I cheated my business partners, and I am nodding vigorously and enjoying this, because this part is kind of the realest to me. Like, every time someone tells me they've seen a psychic or a reader and had some revelation in a dream, they're always a king or queen in their past life. And to me, it's like, there are not that many kings in history. How can all of us have been kings? So... Weirdly, this is finally a storyline I can buy into. Being here, smiling at the story, it reminds me of this thing the writer Shruti Ravindran, who grew up in Chennai, once wrote. How she loves to read and reread her horoscope because to her, it's like a very soothing work of fan fiction. And she told me about how sometimes the horoscope feels accurate and Sometimes it doesn't. She will be a girl of a restless nature. She will be a girl of a self-destructive timidity. Her moods but will as she vary puts from it, during times of upheaval, it reassures me to read these typewritten pages, to be reminded that one long-dead man took the measure of my life and said it was not all bad. She will brood over the memories of the past. She will brood on fancied slight. Very unflattering, but also like really specific. And I'm afraid to say like super accurate. I do love this Milkman stuff, not because I believe it, but because I love that someone has created a new mythology for me, a new origin story for the problems I'm facing. And now they've given me a new way to remedy those problems too, albeit through. A few too many visits to temples for my liking. Still, it is pure fun. But when I think about it later, it won't scratch the itch I actually have because, like Shruti, I wanted to walk into the shop and let someone take the measure of my life. I'd hoped that they would find my leaf and look into my eyes and, with complete certainty, tell me that my life wouldn't be all bad. And although I made the journey here, and although those words were said, in the end, I just couldn't believe them. Chapter 7. Spinning. It's 3.30 in the morning. I got this demon stuck inside of me. Um, I can't sleep. The drive home from the naughty shop is somehow so long, and I feel the clock ticking. 
We have maybe five days left on this trip, and I have not felt the magic here. Nothing has brought me closer to believing. Arjun senses my tension. Mark, too. I tell Mark maybe we should race to Varnasi in northern India, even though my astrologer friend Keith warned me it was like a Disneyland of astrology. If we wanted to do something totally crazy, we could, um, we could actually, like, cut this short and fly to, like, Benares. There's a university there and a lot of astrology PhDs and also con men, so maybe there's some fun to be had. Or we could do what the Nadi reader told me to do for penance for my sins as a milkman. I could go to an offering at a Hanuman temple. And I have a specific one in mind. My aunt and family lived in this place, and hopefully where my grandfather finally retired. This little house is called Jin House. I don't know. I mean, I am just throwing ideas at the wall. We stopped for lunch at this place our driver Satish loves, where they serve giant heaping plates of rice on banana leaves, with curries and chutneys ladled on top. We eat with our hands, in the traditional style, shoveling the piping hot food into our mouths. I pair mine with a thumbs up, an Indian Coke of sorts. And while the food fills our bellies, it doesn't calm my nerves. And I grow increasingly irritated about my journey to the naughty shop. A few days later, when I start reviewing my tape, I realize I've missed a crucial detail. A woman I'd interviewed previously, named Malti Das, had walked into a naughty shop a skeptic and walked out a believer. Not because of what she heard from the reader exactly, but because of what she saw. I was looking very disinterested, so that man asked me, ma'am, can you read Tamil? I said, yes, very well, I can read Tamil. Then he started showing the palm leaf to me. After a point, then he said, does your father's name start with A? He said, yes. And then I could see the name written there of my father-in-law, Arakya Swami, in Tamil. That was when it hit me really, you know, I thought, okay, there is something here, they are not bluffing. I feel like an idiot. I hadn't thought to photograph my leaf. I mean, I don't know if they would have let me, but maybe there was a miracle lurking in there. Not in the prophecy, which I thought was so vague, but in the sorting system. Was there something beautiful I had missed? When Mark and I talk about it later, at our hotel bar, Mark has a different perspective on the place. It's basically like a magic trick that we couldn't see the reveal. Yeah, it was like hearing the part of the It was like hearing a magic trick. As he puts it, it doesn't matter if it's real because the shop is in the business of hope. And I think about how he's right. Like there's so many people that come in such desperate situations, right? Like if you hear you're like going to have a comfortable life, you're going to get a new car and you're going to like, you know, like four to five years you're going to get a watcher out. Yeah, I mean like like that probably like sustains a lot of people, right? That would be such a big deal to a certain kind of person. Chapter 8. Double Dose. Months later, my memories of Chennai are a blur. Early morning, strong coffee, ceiling fans that are no match for the heat. But mostly it's just car rides. Hours in the car with Arjun, talking about philosophy and science and our childhoods. The moments we were too proud. The moments that humbled us. 
and how we got here. If Bombay felt like an old friend whose path had diverged from my own, then Arjun was like a close friend I'd lost and then found again. And it's funny that he's here with me because I'd forgotten that Arjun had been warned by his guru that he should not at any cost dabble in astrology. Something I'm reminded of when my wife Lizzie calls. Hey Lizzie. <laughs> Wait, I'll put you on sugar. Well, he, he is my brother at the end of the day and I wasn't going to abandon him. There's a phrase I grew up using in India cousin brother and cousin sister. In joint families, you grow up thinking of your cousins as closer than just a cousin. You tie Rocky to them or these promise threads that promise love and protection. And you treat your cousins like they're siblings because they are in a way. And the fact that Arjun is here with me now, despite the oceans between us, despite the time that's passed, but having said that, uh, this is my first experience with astrology as well. So I was actually warned not to dabble in these kind of um, subjects. <laughs> so, so Mungish is, is, is uh, subjecting you to things you've been avoiding, which is, you know, tempting you with danger. Yeah, tempting me with taboo subjects. Shame, shame. That's right. He's the shame, bad influence shame. in my life. Arjun has told me what he's been through, but... I can't imagine it. It is too horrifying. And I admire him so much. How he somehow pulled together his family and picked up the shards of his life and how he keeps moving forward with such grace and humility. If my days in Chennai were a blur of endless car rides, the final pit stops were always a seat at the hotel bar. Sometimes it was me and Mark, sometimes it was Arjun and me, and occasionally it was the three of us sitting in a dimly lit patio, shooing away mosquitoes as we sipped on these fresh lime sodas. On the tougher days, I'd cut the soda with gin and bum a cigarette off of Arjun. And on one of those nights, Arjun told us about his sudsati, the seven and a half years of bad luck brought on by Saturn that everyone experiences at some point, according to Vedic astrology. And his seven and a half years, he tells us, were considered especially bad. Is this everyone experiencing? Ah, uh, well, I experienced a double satsadi almost, and um, mine pretty much came true. So I've had really shit luck, like, really shit luck. Until this moment, Arjun has never once talked about how difficult this period has been. He's talked about it matter-of-factly, he's talked about embracing the future, but this is the first time he lets us in on just how hard his life was. But mine ended last year. And uh, I'm still trying to understand... The difference? The difference, yeah. I'm trying to figure out what went right. And I know there are certain things that have changed. But I can't, I can't feel it in a physical form. Yeah. That's crazy, I didn't realize And because that. this is India, Arjun jokingly links his misfortune back to what he must have done in his past lives. I obviously did much more than just pass on STDs to one person. <laughs> I mean, Arjun does not believe in astrology. I never asked him to get a reading, but astrology has happened to him. The shadow of that seven and a half years of bad luck, it's been lurking in the back of his mind. There's another moment that I can't stop thinking about from the bar. 
after I turned off my recorder. Mark says that too often, when a story isn't going right, the impulse is to speed up, to book as many interviews as you can. It's that old sailor's adage, if you can't tie a good knot, tie a lot of them. But Mark encourages the opposite. He says I need to slow down. He says, if I'm going to resolve anything about my life, about my dad, it is not going to be with him or Arjun, and it's not going to be through astrology. Astrology was never the point. And he tells me to make a pilgrimage to where I feel most connected, to my family and to my past, to just sit with that experience. And I think about that. I really do. But I don't listen. Because I'm not thinking clearly. I haven't been thinking clearly this whole time, this whole show. Instead, I ask Satish to race me across the state. I drag Arjun along. I collect interviews that will not add up to much. And then... Just when my time in India is nearly up, I realize Mark is right, and I spend 16 hours in a car to find meaning where I should have been looking all along. Thank you so much for not forgetting about our little show. Skyline Drive is a production of Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcast. This show is hosted and written by me, Mangesh Hatikudur. And yes, I know this episode was so long, but I'm about to make it longer with these credits. Mary Phillips Sandy is our supervising producer. How would we get the show out without Mary? The answer is we would not. Mitra Banshahi is our delightful producer and conducted the interview with Shruti. Mark Lotto is my excellent story editor and was such a trooper for suffering with me in India in a city I knew nothing about, though I did feed him lots of paratas. This episode was also produced by the insanely talented Anna Rubinova. I don't know how we could have got through this much tape without her. Anna, you were a boon to the show. The super sweet Dhruv Shivarao hit the streets for this episode and collected extra tape for me. This episode was mixed by my pal at Soundboard. Oh my gosh, the warning. The warning was read by producer extraordinaire Nadia Raymond, who won the first ever audio Pulitzer along with the team at This American Life. Nadia wants you to listen to TAL's next episode, but I want you to know she's a badass. I've got to thank my pal Botany for the theme song and the compositions. Also, Azadi Records. How can I thank Azadi enough? Also, my friends Himanshu Suri, Peter Matthew Bauer, and Motor Sales. And I can't forget my pal Raj, aka Lush Life, for lending me his tunes as well. I am dropping a second mixtape with more music from Skyline Drive, Volume 2. It'll be in the show links. Please go check it out. Additional production and research support for my love, Lizzie Jacobs, Suman, Rock Around the Clock, Bakshi, and my beautiful cousin, Arjun Bakshi. Arjun, I love you. 
This show is executive produced from iHeart by my good pals Nikki Etor and Katrina Norvell. And a shout out to Nikki's baby girl, Pearl. And also Enzo. Enzo, I have not forgotten about you, buddy. Also got to thank my incredible partners from Kaleidoscope, Oswald Lishan, Kate Osborne, Costas Linos, Vahini Shuri. You inspire me every day. Um, special thanks to Ali, Nathan, Connell, Will, and Bob at iHeart for getting behind the show. Barkley, Saurav, and Shanta, my kiddos, Henry and Ruby, my family everywhere. And as always, a big, big thank you to my Amma and my dad, Lalita and Umesh Hatikular, who I thank my lucky stars for. We have one more episode to go, so thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much it means to me. Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.